Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to TVP, and welcome back to Dan Rasmussen, this week's guest. Dan is the founder of Verdad Research, and we last had him on the pod in June of 2021 to discuss his passion for history and how it aided him as a value investor. You can also say history repeats itself because the last time Dan was on the pod, he had just welcomed his second, and this time he's just welcomed his third baby. Congrats! In this episode, Juan and Andy Evans chat with Dan about how reviled value is today relative to when we last spoke, how memory and probability work together, his contrarian view on Michael Porter's five forces and quality investing, ergodicity and how volatility is not the best measure of risk, but it does matter in certain circumstances, and finally, the Europe opportunity. Enjoy! Dan Rasmussen, welcome back to the Pioneer Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you back. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me back, Peter. So I'm joined today by my colleague, Andy Evans. Um, so I'll allow him to introduce himself. Hi, hi Dan. I'm, I'm taking the place of Ben Arnold this time around. Ben did it last time. He's very, very sad to be missing out this time, but uh, hopefully I'll do a good job. Great. Well, excited to get to know you, Andy. It should be a fun conversation. Dan, for those that didn't listen to our first episode, which we recorded probably almost two years ago now, can you please provide us with a brief introduction about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I manage, uh, founded, and uh, CIO of Verdad Advisors. We're a hedge fund. We manage about $850 million. Uh, across a few different strategies. We do um, deep value equities. We do high yield credit. Uh, we um, do, and then we have a business doing crisis investing and countercyclical investing. So when things get really ugly, we uh, can call capital and deploy it into, into economic crises. Dan, I think last time around when you were on the pod, you had just had a, uh, a new baby. And I think that's true this time around. So yes, is, is fact, it every time to celebrate being on the podcast? <laughs> you, you have a new baby? Yes. In fact, our our, uh, our third child was born on the same birthday, two years apart as our second child, which is oh, a funny wow. coincidence, but a girl this time. So we're up, we're up to three, two boys and a girl. So six, six or seven weeks in. Congratulations. That's, yeah, that's perfect. Thank Congratulations. You. Um, Dan, Verdad is also very generous with the research that you put out and allow other investors and the investment community to look at what you guys are looking at and sharing ideas. Can you please walk our listeners with a little bit the background behind that effort and how is it going? Yeah, so we, we write a, a weekly research piece 
um, every week. I've done that since 2015. So at this point, it's a lot of accumulated research. Um, and we really think about what we're doing is trying to make our firm transparent. We're, we're trying to show the research. You know, we, quantitative investment firms or investment firms generally are, are really research firms, right? You're studying the market, you're studying companies. And I think very early on, I said, well, why don't we just make that infrastructure transparent, show people the research we're doing. Um, and I'm a great believer in showing, not telling. You know, if you're, if you're going out and trying to uh, uh, get pe have people get to know you, you know, the best way to have them get to know you is to show them what it is that you do. And the best you know, way an investment firm, I think, can show people what they do is to show off their research. That's really interesting. I, you will correct me if, if I'm wrong, but Verdad came out during COVID and you guys saw a great opportunity mispricing everywhere and you launch a, a fundraising for just one specific vehicle and that did extremely well. Can you walk us through a little bit the story behind that? Yeah. So so it really, you know, we we'd wrestled as I think many value investors did with the period from 2018 to 2020 when value really didn't work. Um, and not only did it not work, but the exact opposite worked, right? Like value investing or factor investing, you can think of as like a ranking algorithm, right? Where you rank from the best to the worst. And, and, and tw from 2018 to 2020, if you just flipped the ranking, you would have done really well. So if you bought the like least profitable, most expensive, highest growth, you know, worst companies you could possibly imagine, they did awesome. <laughs> and if you picked the like cheapest, highest dividend yielding, highest free cash flow yielding, highest, most profitable businesses, you did terribly. And so everything I thought I knew uh, was, was cast on its head. Uh, it was very humbling, as I think it was for many, many value investors. Um, and so I said, "Well, gee, you know, what, what I want to what I want to know is, um, are there times when value is more reliable, or the times when it tends to work better?" And so I st started on a research project, really in 2018, 2019. Uh, and what we found is that um, crises, economic crises and recessions, have historically been um, the best times for value. Um, and if you think about why that is, um, it's in part because value investing is about expectation errors, right? You're, you're trying to buy something um, where the market has an expectation that's way too pessimistic and the reality turns out to be okay and the stock reverses. And what happens during crises and during recessions is that the entire market has a big expectation error and that the entire market becomes convinced that the economy will never recover, that all that basically they trend extrapolate all the bad things that have happened over the previous year and say they're going to keep happening. Um, and in reality, economies tend to recover from crises, especially developed economies uh, tend to recover very strongly from crises. So and often the most worst hit cyclicals end up recovering the most. And so things like you know, industrial manufacturers or um, consumer cyclical businesses or energy stocks, they get whacked when the economy goes into crisis. And then if you buy them, you're buying them at a huge discount at a time when their forward growth rates are actually the highest they're going to be across a full cycle. Um, and so we finished that research kind of in um, the winter of 2019, 2020. Um, and we had this idea of, hey, let's go raise a fund where people will commit to us now. And then when a crisis comes, we can call the money. And we started marketing that in like, you know, I think February of 2020 and then COVID hit in March. And all of a sudden we said, uh, you know, we said we were going to raise in advance of a crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, we got the research done, but we we're in a crisis. So let's just call all the capital now. And we went and bought the most beaten up, cheap, uh, dirt cheap, small cap value stocks we could find um, in the summer of 2020 and held that for 14 months, liquidated it and returned our, our capital to our investors. Um, and we raised another fund to do that. 
Um, and we, we also think there's an opportunity to do that in, in, in Europe, um, which we, uh, we will, whenever there's a big economic crisis, which I thought there was going to be in Europe, but uh, it seems like we've dodged it and we can talk more about that, but, um, but we're also going to do that in Europe as well. We'll come back to Europe a bit later, but, but just um, you know, staying on the, the topic of things maybe shifting on from, from the past couple of years. You know, as you said, back on the podcast in, in 2021, you said that all the high growth stuff has done fantastically well. Deep value is very, very out of favor at this point in time. Where do you think we are in terms of how out of favor deep value is today? How, how reviled is it, do you think? Yeah, I think it really depends on geography. And I think if you broadly contextualize the last few years in the market, let's say through 2021, 2022 and 23 have been a bit different, but through 2021, maybe the previous decade almost, that was a really simple story. It was US large cap technology versus everything else. Um, Anything else that you were doing that was not US large cap tech was doing much worse by comparison to any benchmark, right? Because any benchmark that includes the U.S. large cap tech was doing so great. And the more you piled into that, the better you did. And so I think a lot of investors saw it. I think there were sort of two general reactions to that that you had among investors. One reaction was, gee, let's just go all passive. Let's just own the S&P 500. And I think passive investing and low fee investing is a wonderful thing for investors. The challenge with it, though, I think, is that when investors think passive, they really think the S&P 500. They don't think European mid-cap or, you know, let's do a Japanese index fund or something, right? They, they really think U.S. large cap tech. So you saw piling into um, U.S. through passive uh, investment vehicles and away from anything else, anything small cap, anything mid-cap, anything international. Uh, and then the second move is people then thought, well, if I'm going to take my active bets, I want to take them in private markets. And so you saw the inflation of a massive private market bubble. And both of those things, I think, are sort of the defining um, attributes of the last few years. And I think by contrast, the minute you step out of that world, the minute you step out of US large cap tech and small cap tech, and the minute you step out of the private market and private market adjacent, you know, so think the recent IPO world, you get into areas which have largely been neglected for maybe 10 years. And as a result, they're almost all attractive. International markets are attractive. Small cap markets are attractive. um, Value investments are attractive. And I think you have to then think about what are the different dynamics by region. And I think I sort of divide the world into four. I think of Japan. I think of Europe. I think of the US. And I think of um, emerging markets. And I think you know, each of those has different dynamics at the moment that are going on that shape how interesting the value investment opportunities are. But I think broadly, I think we are um, in a place that if you looked at sort of historical analogs and you said, what does this period quantitatively look like? You know, the one analogy would be like, it looks like you're sitting in Japan in 1990, but the US is Japan and everything else is the rest of the world. And you, you know, you're basically any money you moved out of Japan anywhere else did better. And that's a little bit the way I feel about US large cap at the moment. And I think even by the way, if you went into Japanese small cap value, you would have kind of done fine, right? It was just really US, you know, large cap Japan uh, that was horrible from 1990 on. 
Um, and I think the U.S. dominance has gone on for so long and the growth dominance has gone for so long. And we've just seen the reversal of those things. So, you know, the last year or so have been the first time in a long time where we saw a big value outperformance. The first time in a long time we saw a big international outperformance. It's the first time in a long time uh, we've seen a lot of these dynamics. And my view is that, you know, often in markets, momentum and trends build on themselves. You know, you have one year of value doing well, one year of international doing well, uh, you know, People start saying, oh, great, let's increase our allocation a bit. By three or four years, um, you have everybody justifying it with some narrative about why it's why it's happening that, you know, uh, is, is tends to be exogenous. And then that really is when it gets into full swing. And I think the chance for that is relatively um, big at the moment. And, and so I think, you know, you, you look at your sort of upside, downside skew, and I think it looks pretty good almost everywhere except U.S. large cap. I think this ties in quite nicely to our next question, which actually is going to top in one of the pieces that you guys recently made available to the public, the one that talks about the research done on how probability intersects with memory. And so we wanted to ask you, everyone remembers the narrative of disruption, valuing debt, growth and quality being the natural winners. How do you think this memory cycle works? And it feels like After the dot-com era, it took people four or five years to move on. But maybe you have a, a different insight into the time frame. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. So the piece is covering some really interesting behavioral economics work about how memory shapes how people make probability judgments. Um, and I think I think it's relatively obvious and commonsensical when we think in our everyday lives that our recent memories shape how frequently we anticipate something happening, right? So think of just after September 11th, your perception of how frequently terrorist events happened or how safe airline travel was, was dramatically skewed because you had this very salient event that had recently happened that anchored your probability assessments. If you think about then playing that out across different types of people in different age groups, COVID is a great example. So with COVID, what you saw, uh, which was really interesting and explains sort of some of these behavioral economics trends, uh, let's break it into three groups. They're old people. Now, old people, you know, if you knew one or two things about COVID, one of the things you should have known or figured out from a statistical perspective is that the um, impact of it was very age skewed. The, you know, the median age of death was 85 or something. And so your um, chance of dying was just massively higher if you were old. Um, but old people generally had a, uh, their risk assessment of COVID was way too low, actually. Um, and when the researchers who were studying this phenomenon uh, looked into why, it turned out that their explanation is that um, older people had experienced so many bad events over the course of their lives, so many things they were supposed to be scared of, and they'd survived them all, that by that point, they just thought, hey, this is another one of those. It's like, I don't need to pay that much attention to COVID. It's just like the you know, scare over X, Y, or Z three years ago, and I survived that, or, you know, so who cares? Young people tended to dramatically overreact. Um, and that was because they had fewer of those intervening events. They had never, they hadn't experienced a, something like this before. It was new, it was on the news. And so in their view, they massively overestimated their risks, when in reality, COVID posed almost no risk to healthy people under the age of 40. Uh, and then sort of funnily enough, the, the people that most overestimated the risk for, uh, of COVID were people that um, had trouble estimating the percentage of people in the world with red hair. So if you thought that like um, 10% of people in the world have red hair, you thought COVID was going to kill you, you know, if you stepped outside your house, right? So people that had really bad understandings of probability um, had really bad reactions to COVID. And so what they sort of extrapolate that out to say is that 
you know, our memories work, um, the way our memories work, um, how much experience, how many experiences we've had, how salient an event is, how good we are at um, relating math and probability and numbers to lived experience, these things shape our, the way we actually then act. And I think naturally it shapes the way we invest. And so if you think about what does that do to investors, right? And investors tend to be anchored towards the last three years, what worked over the last three years and what didn't work over the last three years. And that's going to be shaping in a large part what people are willing to bet on. Um, and I'd say, you know, one um, example I see in the market right now is the huge fervor over artificial intelligence. And I think if you had a memory of just the last few years, um, and you said the one memory that should be really salient to you is anytime you hear about a hot new technology, buy it immediately and hold it for a year or two, you know, and, and because these fads have just gone nuts in markets, whether it's 3D printing or, you know, electric vehicles or crypto, right? Just try to get in early um, and then you, you make a lot of money. Now, that's not been the experience. It, you know, investing in fads has not generally been a good thing. And from a probability perspective, it's not a good thing. But, um, but in recent memory, it has been a good thing. And in recent memory, U.S. large cap tech has been a good thing. Um, but these, um, these fads or these recent memories can be disrupted by big salient events. So you have an event or you have a set of circumstances that change in the trailing three years of someone's memory is something different. Then you're going to see a very different pattern of behavior um, that starts to anchor how investors make decisions. So the world in which we're living is a world in which investors have a very strong memory of um, fads doing well, of U.S. large cap being the safest, best place to invest. And of everything that's diversifying being a waste of time and money. What needs to happen for help people to move forward? You know, I think it's a mix of things. I mean, I think you have to have, I think narratives, narratives are often easily disrupted because the world, you know, goes in a probabilistic way, not a narrative way. And the more specificity your narrative has, the more likely it's going to be disrupted by random future events. Um, and so I said, I think I, I might have even said on this podcast, uh, although I can't remember, you know, what happens when Amazon's growth starts slowing down or Amazon prints negative revenue, you know, a decline in revenue for a year or something, right? How do people then reevaluate Amazon or large cap tech in general, right? What what, what happens at the same with Google? And actually in 22, we sort of saw that, right? Slowing growth and um, at Facebook and these massive revaluations downward as the narratives got disrupted. And I think to some extent, you know, it remains to be seen what sort of salient events will disrupt these big narratives. But one that just naturally is disrupting them already has been even one year, which is 2022, in which value and international outperformed um, and which people started to say, gee, um, maybe I do need diversification, right? You had the whole era of Tina, there is no alternative, right? And all of a sudden now people are saying, well, there are alternatives. And actually there are alternatives in the bond market. Gee, I can earn 5% in bonds. Like that's kind of, that's fine. I, you know, I'd be happy with 5%. Um, and I think those facts on the ground are already changing perceptions. And I wonder um, what other, you know, future events might happen. I, I still think the private market bubble venture has been burst. That bubble has burst um, in a dramatic way, um, uh, but private equity has not yet. Um, and private real estate was right. That Blackstone public REIT redemption crisis thing, right? That that really changed the way people thought about private REITs and private real estate. But the same thing hasn't happened with private equity and private credit, I think, too. And so I think we, you know, the, that shoe has yet to drop. Um, and I think, you, you, you know, the fragility of um, a new narrative hasn't yet formed, right? A new narrative hasn't yet formed. People are just reacting to the numbers. And so you've seen in 2023, actually, a big rebound in a lot of the um, crazy fad stocks and large cap tech rallying in an AI fad. 
and to the detriment of, I think, a lot of uh, international and value-oriented strategies. Uh, and so I think, and I think that's almost, it's like an echo rally. You know, people are just trading on what used to work, but I'm very skeptical that that's really going to be the true uh, end state of the world. I was um, listening back to the last podcast, um, you know, in preparation for this one. I was, I was sat on the train and I sat there thinking, oh, Dan's great. He, he's saying everything that I believe in. It sounds fantastic. You know, I don't think I disagree with anything you said on the, on the last podcast. And that's obviously because you were just parroting back all my beliefs back. To you. <laughs> it, it, it was wonderful. I mean, it's classic confirmation bias. So how, how about we turn it on our head and say, you know, we're, we're three people with a pretty similar belief system. You know, we believe in deep value, et cetera. What if we were to say in two years' time we do another podcast, but everything's gone wrong? But what what do you think it is that could trip up deep value in, in the current situation? Yeah, well, you know, I do think, you know, one characteristic of deep value that is really important, you know, for people to be aware of. I, I think there are two two real dynamics that are at foot with deep value. One is that deep value just is economically sensitive stuff companies, right? It, it it just always is. You're always overweight. Um, companies that are sensitive to economic developments. When bad economic developments happen, deep value stocks don't, you know, magically outperform just because you bought them right. They tend to get whacked uh, even more because their um, um, their revenues and their profits tend to be cyclical, and uh, and that's what creates the crisis investing opportunity. But that's what also creates big drawdowns in deep value. The second thing that's worth noting, and it's related to that, is is the liquidity dynamics. Um, deep value stocks tend to be smaller just sort of naturally, right? They don't have big market caps relative to their fundamentals and they don't have big market caps generally and they're not that sexy. And so they're not like something you're trading in your Robinhood account. You're not like, hey, I'm going to log into my Robinhood account and buy some like boring German industrial stock, right? <laughs> you're like, you, you want to go buy some like uh, electric vehicle stock or something, right? So they're more thinly traded. And so market liquidity dynamics do also affect deep value. And so you do see this enhanced volatility. And so I think if you're if you're looking at what's the classic reason deep value underperforms, you know, deep value underperforms anytime the end of your performance state is a is, is some sort of crisis or economic downturn. You're always going to say, well, my trailing window for deep value is terrible, right? It's it's sort of a common reason. And there's something I like about that. It's that there, you know, there's known knowns, known unknowns, unknown unknowns, right? And uh, with uh, deep value, you kind of know the risks you're taking. It's usually relatively clear. Whereas when you're buying a sexy growth stock that's near perfect, you know, what is the risk? You don't really know, you know, what's the risk to Apple? It's like, I don't know. I think iPhones are pretty awesome. I love my iPhone. They seem to be doing everything right. They've got the semiconductors that they're building in-house. The company's perfect. What's the risk? I don't know, right? What's the risk to NVIDIA? I don't know, right? They're kind of these perfect stories. And so you don't know how you're going to get blindsided. And then when you do, it's really, really bad. Whereas with deep value, you know what you're getting into, and there's something very pleasant about that. But I think it's easy to imagine a world in which deep value does terribly because we've experienced it so recently, um, and that's in investors' heads. And I think that's also the reason that it makes it attractive because people, you know, think of energy stocks, for example, um, where energy stocks were, you know, actually kind of in favor. There's the shale boom in the U.S. and so sort of 2011, 12, 13, 14 even. Um, people were piling into shale and energy stocks. Chesapeake Energy at the time had one of the best 20-year records of any stock. And then 2015 uh, happened and, and energy all crashed. And some people bought the dip in energy in 2016 and then lost more money over the ensuing years. And then ESG came along and said all of energy is evil, um, even you know, even though we all use it. Um, uh, but somehow all the companies that produce it are evil. And so we have to get out of energy. Um, and then, you know, basically at that point, all the value investors have been so burned on every energy stock they bought for five years. 
um, all of the, uh, you know, all the institutional people um, uh, uh, were, you know, uh, basically giving into all these pressures to drop it. And so, uh, and then all of a sudden energy has its best year ever, right? It's just this, it just blows out good. And then you look at the stocks and they're still cheap. But what you've seen, I think, is these sort of cycles where things get out of favor and then they get more out of favor and then they do well. And then they can do well for years uh, and it, uh, as things follow. And I think that's sort of the way I, I sort of think we are with deep value, where we've had some bad experiences with deep value. We've had a period it just hasn't worked. And so that's created a huge um, withdrawal of money from the sector. And I think even with deep value, because it's liquidity constrained, um, and because it's very sensitive to expectation errors, small changes in expectations and small changes in flows can change valuations in a big way. Um, and I think that makes me very optimistic for the next few years. Uh, and I think it reduces, in my sense, what the risks are. I think the riskiest things um, are the things that people are extremely positive about and think nothing can go wrong. And the least risky things are often the things where the risks are most obvious and most salient and most recent. There are very few things which are as contrarian as being critical of Michael Porter. <laughs> and something we didn't touch upon on our first session a couple of years ago, but I know that you've been asked a lot, is your contrarian view about Michael Porter. And usually, like an elevator pitch from many investors nowadays is something that is related to the quality of a business. So we wanted to ask you specifically... Can you talk us through your contrarian view on Porter's five forces and the whole quality investing? Yeah, so so my uh, my father's an antitrust uh, lawyer, and uh, so he deals with competition and mergers and acquisitions, not not in the sense of doing the deals, but in the uh, sense of dealing with the FTC and regulatory approvals um, when when their uh, competitive status is threatened. And what's really interesting is that um, so I, I always knew a lot in the back of my head about antitrust law. Um, and at the same time, I was learning about investing. And uh, when I began learning about investing, I was exposed very early on to Porter's Five Forces and the you know, competitive strategy frameworks. Um, and, and if you wanted to reduce competitive strategy um, to the simplest element of it, it's all about scale mattering, right? Or relative market share mattering. Um, and the more market share you have, the more quote unquote market power you have, and the more market power you have, the higher your margins are because you can squeeze your competitors or squeeze your suppliers or squeeze your customers, right? They don't have a replacement, so they have to pay you more. Your market share is so high, you can squeeze the suppliers. They have to sell, you know, you're the only game in town, they have to sell to you. And so the, the story actually, Michael Porter's story and it's a lot of complexity in seven chapters and five forces and whatever, right? But at its heart, it boils down to a pretty simple idea, which is that um, companies with more market power should be able to use that market power to better margins and better outcomes. And that's the essence of it. And what's interesting about that is that that is such a beloved idea by value, by value investors, but more so by quality investors, um, but that that idea has been completely discredited by economists and by the law. Um, so, and, and discredited like in the 70s and early 80s. So what the antitrust law, and really it was this University of Chicago law and you know, market project found was that there's really actually no correlation between market share and margins. There's no relationship between market power and margins. And so all of this research that had been done in the 70s 
which was trying to say monopolies are bad and quasi-monopolies are bad and companies with market power are bad. Which And, and Michael Porter basically just took that and said, well, if it's bad from a uh, comp- competition and market perspective, it must be good for investors because they're buying these companies that can you know, do these evil things and therefore they're going to benefit from it. And that's sort of Porter's background. But the law and economics movement um, said, no, there's just no evidence. Um, There's absolutely no evidence. And I think to bring that forward to the present day, the classic example of this is Amazon. And think of Amazon, not web services, but think of their, you know, their online retail business, right? And the current FTC chair, Lena Khan, um, she became FTC chair because she wrote this article uh, uh, called uh, The Amazon Antitrust Paradox, um, where she argued, you know, here's the problem. Amazon seems to me to have a monopoly on um, uh, on online shopping or a quasi-monopoly or at least a massive market share. Uh, and yet, under the standards of the law and economics, it said that something isn't anti-competitive unless you can prove consumer harm. So if consumers aren't harmed, it's not illegal. So just because you have 90% market share, if you're not screwing your customers over, um, then, then there's no problem. And and she was saying, and there's really no way to show that Amazon's harmed consumers, right? They've driven prices down. Um, they have customers have more choice at lower cost, um, and so it seems like cons- customers have benefited, not suffered, by virtue of Amazon. And yet, Amazon is a monopoly, so surely it must be problematic. And that's sort of the paradox she was wrestling with. And she comes out and saying Amazon is clearly evil, so we just need to find a way to show it's evil. And I, you know, I don't really lo- love that approach, but that's really the paradox at its heart, right? Like you can become Sometimes companies gain a lot of market share by virtue of having low prices, like you know Walmart or something, right? And it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to make massive margins um, as a result of that. And in contrast, some companies with very small market share, like Hermes, you know, and now they have obviously more scale, but you know have very big margins because they're luxury goods or whatever, right? So there's just a lot of elements of Porter's thinking that just don't make a lot of empirical sense and, and aren't founded empirically. And I think that what I would argue as a value investor is that people use um, Porter's type frameworks to justify buying expensive past winners, right? That market share and high margins are often, it's a scoreboard. It's like, you know, you're betting on the winning team and there's something that feels good about that and secure about that. Um, And value investors are always betting on the underdog. Uh, And we're saying, gee, I think the company that's out of favor, that hasn't done well, it's not on the winning team is going to do better. Um, and I ultimately think that the game of investing is meta-analytic. It's about how reality plays out relative to expectations. So if you think great things are going to happen and then only okay things happen, you can lose a lot of money. But if you forecast that horrible things are going to happen, then only bad things happen, not horrible things, you make money. And it's not about the whether it was good or bad. It's how that played out relative to what was priced in. And so I think investors are, are much better suited getting rid of Porter's thinking and ignoring it, both because it has no empirical grounding, no empirical evidence, not single quantitative studies ever shown that it works or has any relevance to anything. It's just about a narrative. And it's really a narrative that justifies favoring prior winners. And so I really, I think it's irresponsible that it keeps getting taught to generations of investors and it keeps getting taught at business school. Um, and I, I even at uh, when I was at business school, I... Um, I actually basically got kicked out of my strategy class because every class, it was we had five classes in a row going through each of the five forces. And every class, I would raise my hand and say, Professor, are you going to present any empirical evidence that what you're teaching today is true? Or are you going to ask us to accept it on faith like we did last week? And after I think the third time I asked that, I got kicked <laughs> out of the class. And uh, anyway, but I think there's a real truth that I was trying to get across with that. I think we can all agree, obnoxious question. That was really interesting. 
That's great. There's another couple of pieces that you've written which I wanted to uh, reference, and they were related to uh, long long run portfolio outcomes, and they referenced St. Petersburg paradox and uh, the Kelly criterion, and that instantly got us interested because it's on one of our pet topics of, of ergodicity, and that that's kind of the idea that you know there's a, a view which if you looked at expected value return um, you know, approach to returns, you're probably going to be wrong because time matters. And we've done a couple of podcasts on, on this subject, but I'll be very interested in hearing your approach to, to this subject, because I think you've approached it from a slightly different angle from, from others that we've heard. So what, what, what was your approach here? Yeah, I, I think, um, so I think there are a few, I think, important points for investors to consider. And, and, and these are abstract and hard to talk about topics. So, you know, th- there are so many research pieces which you can kind of, you, you do the empirical work, and then you can explain it pretty easy, and it's obvious. And when you get into ergodicity and the Kelly criterion and St. Petersburg paradox, it's so hard to make it understandable and relevant um, that uh, that we spent like three weeks just wrestling with it to try to get to something that made sense. So these are really hard topics, but I do think they're important and they're worth diving into. Um, so starting with you know Kelly criterion type thinking, right? I think the the basic way to understand that is if you have an investment with a 0% expected return. And that investment, however, has a variance of 10%. So it goes up 10% and then down 10% or down 10% and then up 10%. Um, you end up with less than the money you started with, even though you had you know, seemingly symmetric returns in the upside and downside, you have less money. And if you'd only gone up 5% and down 5%, you'd have more money than if you'd gone up 10% or down 10%. So there's this volatility drag Right, that even if you have the same, if you have two investments, the same expected return, but one has higher volatility, the investment with higher volatility is actually going to end up with a worse outcome than the other one. So you have to consider volatility and the path of your investment through time uh, rather than just thinking uh, what is the pure expected return. You know, I think another, you know, classic way to think about ergodicity is to think about catastrophe bonds, where, you know, catastrophe bond basically pays you out a yield until a catastrophe happens, then you lose all your money. So like, think of like a Florida hurricane bond or something, right? It's going to pay you 10% a year, but if there's a hurricane, you lose all your money. And so, you know, basically it seems really good. The expected return seems really positive and then you lose all your money. And that's a classic example of um, of a uh, a path where you uh, pat, you, know, you go through time in a suboptimal way because you were thinking about expected return in time zero and you weren't thinking about the complete path or how that was going to play out over time. And so I think where this gets you is to try and think from a portfolio perspective, um, introducing a set of new ideas of, of thinking about um, uh, volatility drag, of thinking about path dependency, thinking about you know when we're looking at these large data sets, we're going to we're going to transit one unique path through this data set, not experience the full distribution of outcomes because we just don't experience um, the full dimension of time, right? Maybe that's because we're 50 and we're saving for 15 years from now, um, or uh, we're, even if we're 30 and we're experiencing 35 years of investment history, the, the, the starting and end point of those 35 years uh, really matter. And so you need to understand, you know, how volatile is the thing that I'm looking at? How likely is it to be true across the horizon I care about, um, et cetera? Uh, and I think those are really interesting ideas. Now, how do they impact, you know, how to thinking about those really abstract ideas uh, relate to uh, investing? 
Um, I think there are, you know, a few a few different ways in which you can think about them. Um, I think one of the ways in which I contextualize or, or think these these ideas are relevant um, is thinking about what portfolios should I own, or you know, broadly what types of assets I should own. And I think that I would I would say, based on this type of thinking, um, the more the longevity of the thing you're investing, like the longer lived it's been the more you can understand the distribution of potential outcomes and the lower the probability that your ergodic path is going to end up being disastrous. Whereas things that are really new and that have less history and are thus seems, often seem sexier are much, much, much more risky because you can't really understand the true distribution of outcomes in the way you'd like to. Um, another one is diversification, right? That you, you know, maybe don't want to put all your money in one stock. You know, you need to achieve a certain number of stocks or a certain number of bonds before you're actually safe and before you've diversified away the risk that the path dependent outcome is going to actually be really bad for you. Another way to think about this is to think about, again, that Japan in the late 80s perspective. Japan has had an unbelievable run. You're so rich from investing in Japanese stocks that you could go and buy, you know, 50 golf courses in California. But if you put all your money in Japanese stocks in 1989, um, holy smokes, you do terribly for the next 30 years. And so any decision that got you out of that is really good. And I think you need to think about you know, these days there are more um, ETFs, there are more indices than there are equities in the US at least. And so you need to think about, are my style diversified? Maybe I own 500 stocks, but if they're all US large cap stocks, am I really diversified or am I stuck in one category? And the path dependency of that category could hurt me. Uh, and so I think diversification is a way to reduce that ergodic risk, investing in things long histories. So rather than saying, I'm gonna put all my money in crypto, um, maybe you say, well, gee, you know, I don't, I don't think I really know the true path that those crypto investments are going to follow or the true risks that, that they're going to experience a la my exchange being actually a, a fraud. And I think the other dynamic of it is, is being sensitive to volatility. Um, and I don't think that's being sensitive to, you know, investors always say, you know, I don't care about volatility. I care about drawdowns or I care about loss of capital. And I think that what my response to that would be that volatility ends up being quite correlated with things that you say you care about. So if you care about drawdowns, volatility is really correlated with drawdowns. So if you care about loss of capital, volatility is really correlated to um, complete loss of capital, right? Or bankruptcy, higher volatile things are more likely to go bankrupt. Um, and so it's a useful tool. Now, it's not a uh, it's not a perfect tool. So just investing in lower volatile things versus more volatile things doesn't necessarily lead you to better portfolio outcomes. Although, you know, there are some strategies that have done that to good effect, but it's a useful way of thinking about what the trade-offs are when you invest in something and knowing the volatility of a thing and understanding how that fits into your portfolio and making sure you're comfortable with that risk. I think it's a really important thing to know. And I think that as small cap or as value investors, it's incumbent upon us to say, gee, small cap is a lot more volatile than large cap. Value has been a lot more volatile than growth. Um, and you need to be aware of that when you go in and buy this stuff or invest in this stuff. And I think that is also a really helpful conversation to have with people and set expectations to say, you know, no investment is perfect. Um, you're not going to get low volatility with high returns um, unless you're invested in private equity, in which case, great. And that's probably a massive bubble and you're going to find out why before long. And that's probably an example of one of these ergodic paths that uh, is really detrimental to people where long experience has not yet revealed uh, the hidden risks. But I think that this type of thinking is just a really sophisticated meta-analytic way of reflecting on portfolio choices um, that drives you to make better decisions. 
So that's a great segue into my next question, which actually I'm going to split in two. So the first leg of the question is, how do you incorporate these thoughts into your portfolio construction process, if at all, say, for instance, if you are looking at small cap, which are quite levered, and they will run a higher risk of bankruptcy. And then the second question is, you explain uh, uh, at the beginning of the session today that you are also an investor in high yield. So how do you think about volatility in the context of capital allocation between high yield, the opportunity set in high yield and equities? Yeah, so I think one there's one really interesting finding from academic finance that I love, which is that bankruptcy risk isn't compensated. Um, so uh, buying things that have a higher probability of distress does not lead you to earn higher returns. So you know the classic academic mindset is that markets are efficient, therefore more risk should be compensated with more reward. We, we all know that there are so many exceptions to that, but one of the most obvious exceptions to that is bankruptcy risk. And that is because of this ergodicity er, er, concept, right? If, if your path ends with a potential zero or the ch chance of a potential zero is incrementally higher, you want to avoid that investment like a plague. And I think within the world of small cap value or levered small cap value and of high yield, you're obviously dealing with the question of bankruptcy in a more prominent way. Um, now I'd say, gee, if you're investing in IPOs, you're unwittingly, <laughs> you're unwittingly investing in potential bankruptcy risk because you actually, interestingly enough, and we did this analysis, if you take the pool of IPOs, they actually have a higher bankruptcy risk or go to zero risk um, than do levered companies in the public markets uh, and even like triple C issuers. So, you know, your, your risk is greatest when you go and buy the, you know, hottest, most hyped, um, newfangled, innovative companies. But when you go into the world of, of value and, and of high yield and of these, you know, low, slow growth or declining or, um, or um, uh, you know, businesses, you are dealing more with, with bankruptcy risk. And, and I think, therefore, it's really important to have a clear uh, understanding of what bankruptcy look, risk looks like and how to avoid it in your portfolio. Um, and I think it's a really important skill set that really matters um, in our part of the world. Um, growth investors uh, or large cap investors don't really have to think about it as much. The chance that a company um, um, jumps to default, right, that a large cap jumps to default is only really happening in the case of fraud like Enron or WorldCom. Um, other than that, large caps never really jump to default. Companies go from large cap to mid cap to small cap and then they default. Um, and so what we think of um, uh, doing is running a barrage of different uh, uh, quantitative tools to predict bankruptcy, and then basically screening all the companies out that have too high a risk of bankruptcy. Uh, and that we find to be an effective portfolio tool uh, that prevents those those bad outcomes. Really, um, really interesting. At, at the very top, you uh, talked about Europe, you mentioned Europe, and uh, I think you put out a piece, maybe it was just yesterday, uh, referencing Europe and the attractions uh, of investing there, um, and particularly with Sweden, I think in, yeah. in particular as a, as a market. Um, we're definitely not going to push back against the, the case for Europe, but love to hear your thoughts on, on the European opportunity. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting, right? I mean, I think if you rewind a year ago, um, everybody was bearish on Europe, right? I mean, uh, and, and you had so many reasons to be bearish on Europe, right? The Russia-Ukraine war, the energy crisis that was caused by the ostensible looming energy crisis that was caused by that. And then you had this perception that's very strong among U.S. investors in particular that 
European companies are less well-run, less efficient, um, less dynamic. There's less innovation than U.S. companies, for example. And so why would you invest in Europe? You're getting, you know, this hodgepodge of, you know, quasi-socialist countries with companies that are slow and boring and, um, and potentially threatened by Russia and about to be hit by an energy crisis, which is going to cause a massive decline in earnings for the entire continent. Um, and then you've got the UK, which is just a classic, you know, um, ever since Brexit, they could do nothing wrong, right. And now they've got some horrible economic plan or what, you know, whatever it might be, right? There's just a litany of horrors. Um, and then all of a sudden, the last year, um, recession probability has come down a lot. And all of a sudden, European stocks have hit on a tremendous run uh, for the past six, nine months as that recession probability decreased and, and, and value stocks in particular. Um, and now all of a sudden, you know, you see these sort of weird headlines where like a European company and a European um, uh, LVMH and Bernard Arnault are all of a sudden, uh, you know, uh, catapulted into the rich list and the most valued companies. You think, wait, it's a European company. I thought European companies were badly run or I thought Europe was going to go into a recession. Uh, and all of a sudden those things seem, seem not true. And so I think what we were writing about is first, you know, from a you know valuation perspective, you know, Europe is really cheap relative to the United States for all the reasons we talked about earlier. And all of a sudden, the economic outlook, you know, how comfortable do you feel like with the U.S. economic outlook, right? How you know, and and look at how the U.S. is priced. The U.S. is priced to perfection with an economic outlook that looks cloudy. Um, and even if European Europe's economic outlook is cloudy, and I would say it looks more like there's a looked like there was going to be a big storm, and then now it's only cloudy. Um, it's priced as though there's a big storm. And so you're getting, you know, potentially kind of equivalent outcomes and maybe Europe even has better outcomes, I don't know, um, with massively different entry valuations. And I think if you go, you know, through the different regions, I think, you know, Europe encompasses, you know, a, a bunch of different economic zones and different dynamics within it. Um, you know, the UK has its own dynamics. Um, Scandinavia has its own dynamics. Uh, Eastern Europe has its own dynamics. Uh, the Mediterranean region has its own dynamics. So you, you have a whole variety of things to choose from. And what we were writing about um, uh, on Monday, you know, probably the you know, places that are, you know, most interesting, it doesn't mean either small markets, but they're really interesting are, are Poland and, and, uh, and, Swiss, uh, and Sweden. Um, Poland is interesting. It's just so cheap. Now it's a really tiny part of the market. There aren't that many stocks there, but if you want just really cheap stocks, you know, the entire Polish stock market, all five investable stocks are really cheap. Um, and Sweden, also a really small market, not that many investable stocks, um, isn't necessarily as cheap uh, on a pure valuation basis. It's cheap relative to its own history um, and has you know, meaningfully you know, safer, more robust uh, earnings growth potential. Um, and you know, companies like um, uh, Ericsson on the large cap end, and you, you, know, you can go down to the small cap end, um, are trading at a discount relative to what are really quite attractive fundamentals. So you have a sort of a quality at a decent price in Sweden, and you have you know whatever you have in Poland at a dirt cheap price. Um, and those are two examples of some of the opportunity sets you're seeing as a European uh, investor. And I think you know those dynamics are really interesting, and they're very different from what you see if you just orient it around being an investor in the United States. Coming back to your uh, your point you were making before about memory and, and investment decisions. Do, do you think U.S. investors in particular have kind of shifted their mindset to say they don't, they can't just rely on the U.S. market one hundred percent? That they may have to look outside of the U.S. market, which I I don't get the sense is what what's happened over the past decade. No, I think it'll take time. I mean, I think we're in the very very early innings of any such move, um, and I think you know people have been. 
um, uh, you know, burned over and over again. You know, I have I sit on uh, one investment committee, and there's you know one guy on our committee who has been a believer in U.S. large cap growth stocks for like ten years. Um, and every quarter, and there's a bunch of value investors on the on the committee. And so the value investors, anytime value starts doing well, anytime international does well, they're always like, oh, let's increase our international, let's increase our value. And this guy's like, no, don't do it. Just keep, you know, keep a bias towards US large cap. And he's been right so many times. Um, and the value people have been wrong so many times that he, you know, uh, you know, his voice carries a lot of weight. And I think, you know, for that perspective to not carry weight. It has to be consistently wrong. And even look at the start of 2023, where the NASDAQ is up like 20% or something, right? So, you know, the instinct or the um, memory of people for thinking that we should be overweight US large caps is a bad answer. Um, there's no memory of that. Uh, that's never been a memory that's in people's heads for the last decade, at least. And that's a, a large part of people's careers. And so I think until you know you give the answer and it's wrong three or four years in a row, um, people aren't going to get it out of their head. And I think we have a long, a long stretch of U.S. underperformance before um, any narratives really start shifting. Dan, we are coming to an end to our session. And as last time, we cannot let you go without providing us with at least two book recommendations. Because I think that last time you gave us like three. So <laughs> could you provide us with at least two book recommendations? I know that you are writing a piece for the Wall Street Journal where you are reviewing books that you have recently read. So out of that pocket list or things that you have not mentioned on the Wall Street Journal, what would you recommend us read? Yeah, that's a, a great uh, question. Uh, you know, actually, a book that I've, uh, I'm really enjoying I'm reading now is uh, a biography of Stalin by Joel Kotkin. Uh, and it has, you know, nothing to do uh, with investing. Um, but I think uh, at this time, the importance of Russia and understanding the Russian perspective of the world and understanding the history of Russia seems a lot more important. Um, and uh, Stalin and his uh, story are quite interesting. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, it, it's funny because, uh, you know, uh, we've had some investments in Russia that are uh, now uh, valued at zero because we can't sell them. And we were talking internally about when is the Russian market going to reopen or, you know, when are we going to be able to sell these Russian equities or um, value them again? Uh, and uh, my colleague, Brian, who's from Zimbabwe, uh, uh, who, who uh, therefore has a very different experience of these things, you know, he pointed out, well, the Bolsheviks, you know, closed the stock market in 1918. It didn't open again until 1991. So, or whatever. So, I, you know, I wouldn't get your hopes up. We're ever going to see any money from those Russian investments. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, but, you know, oftentimes investing common sense is often quite boring. So saying something new and interesting about investing is really hard. Um, and uh, so it's hard to, I think it's hard. It's challenging to write a, a book about investing that is, novel and interesting because, you know, because so many of the lessons are quite, quite boring. And that's the challenge. And so I'm always on the look for, you know, uh, people that can really present a new perspective. You know, I think some of the most interesting stuff right now is going on in behavioral economics and psychology and the way that intersects with markets. Um, that's the stuff I, I really like and in, enjoy. Uh, and I think, uh, I think that's probably the the type of book that I, I like uh, the most. The one I, I, I read reviewed recently that I really liked is called The Anxious Investor. Uh, and it just talked about the role anxiety plays in people's portfolios. And gee, anyone that's ever been an investment manager and had clients um, can tell you that anxiety is a really important force. Um, and understanding how to grapple with investor anxiety and what that means for a portfolio, I think, is a very relevant question. That's really interesting. Dan Rasmussen, thank you very much for coming back to the Value Perspective Podcast. 
My pleasure. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Andy, for having me. Thank you.